Hey, Vista. Good to see you. Thanks for tuning in. I've got a special honor for you today. We're welcoming uh, Dr. Pastor Kevin Dudley into our space um, to preach this morning, and I know you're going to love him. Uh, he and I met about a year ago, and, and uh, I knew in like a minute, maybe less than a minute, that uh, I, I thought he was awesome. I love him as a brother already, and uh, he's a super qualified guy. He's got all kinds of competencies, and he's got a big heart, um, all kinds of degrees. It's really very, it's very impressive, but if you meet him, and you, you will get to know him a little bit here, um, he's a humble man that wants to serve God and uh, be um, part of the impetus for Columbus churches to cooperate uh, for Jesus' sake. It's, it's really fun to be around, and we're enjoying some time together. Um, we're learning together, dreaming about some things together, uh, particularly in the space that he um, leads called Catalyst, which is uh, part of uh, sort of an operational arm of the Fort Columbus um, uh, group of churches. Uh, he has a lovely wife, Gail, whom I've met a couple times, and our wives have met. They're kinda, they kind of hit it off, too, almost just like us. Uh, he's got a boy and a girl, but they're a man and a woman, Alex and Dominique, and they're like 30 some 30, 33, 25. 33 and 25. Um, uh, Kevin used to pastor a church uh, called North Point, and now is an uh, itinerant pastor, a preaching pastor, teaching pastor at... Uh, Mount Olivet Baptist, where they lost their uh, pastor. Was he the founding? No, 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 no. no it's probably been around a long, long time. Uh, Forty plus years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they lost their their pastor, and he's filling in there for right now. So it's really our privilege uh, to have him. Thank you so much for being here again. Um, we're working through the Apostles' Creed, and uh, Kevin is going to take the section called uh, where it says, "I believe in the forgiveness of sins." And if you're going to talk about forgiveness, you do have to talk about sin. <laughs> and uh, he will certainly cover both. But that, that's the part we're looking at today. Uh, I ask you to welcome uh, Dr. Dudley. And uh, you ready? Have ready. at it. Thank you. I'm going to get these stools out of your way. Thanks for being here. Well, grace and peace to you, my sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ. And uh, I am just so overjoyed and thankful to be able to be uh, to share a few moments with you and to be in partnership and friendship with Pastor Mike and uh, actually the entire Vista team has been just a blessing to me and to our entire team as we do good work in the city. So thank you for having me on this occasion. And as Mike said, we'll continue this conversation uh, in the creed to talk about that, that one line, I believe in the forgiveness of sin. I think the best place to start is around a Hebrew concept of shalom. In fact, shalom is probably one of the most significant, one of the most important and profound uh, terms and ideas of our faith. It's this sense that our good and our gracious God wants all of us, and in fact wants all things to be well, things to be as they should be, for things to be properly ordered and in proper position and properly interrelated, that things would work as God initially, originally, and ultimately intends for all things to be. God wants shalom for us, well-being, that peace, that wholeness. Uh, God wants justice. 
God wants us to be in right relationship, not only with one another, but in right relationship with the fullness of all creation. And most important, to be in right relationship with him. There's a major problem though. And this kind of gets at the crux of our conversation today because in spite of the fact that God has made it so that there is the possibility of shalom and that God wants shalom for all of us, there is this great, huge problem called sin. Ah, sin. You know, as an undergraduate, when I was at OSU many, many moons ago, one of the most enriching courses that I ever took was an introduction to African-American art that was focused on the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, that was the time around the uh, beginning of the 20th century, right after Reconstruction and heading into the Great Migration where former slaves were making their way north to the cities to find work. And in this course, I can see him even to this day. Dr. Hudson would stand at the front of the classroom and he exposed us to artists like Henry O. Tanner and Romare Bearden and Selma Burke and Aaron Douglas and all of these women and men who were bringing such fullness to what it was in terms of the African-American experience. In that course, we learned to appreciate the value and the beauty that was emerging even out of the difficulty and the brokenness at that time in our nation's history. And I remember those artists because they affected me so profoundly, so much so that to this day, I continue to collect art wherever I can find it from that genre. Now in my study, hanging on the wall, in front of my cluttered desk, there's a reprint that's reminiscent of a work of a painter, Jacob Lawrence. And it sits there on my wall in this matted frame, very simple picture. But it's a blend of melancholic shading and dramatic colors and layered geometrical pieces that form, get this, the imperfect mosaic of a jazz trumpet player. I'm a jazz fan too, by the way. And this trumpeteer is playing his trumpet and he's dressed impeccably. He's in a tailored black suit with a crisp white shirt. He's there portrayed though in pieces, right? It's a mosaic. You can make out what the piece is, but, but he's in pieces. He's holding his coveted instrument with poise and with precision and professionalism. And the image is there, but it's terribly fragmented. This image we can make out and the mood is right. It's almost as though you want to be in that picture, but it's in pieces. To this day, that mosaic always moves me to consider not just the beauty of what's being portrayed, but the fact of the matter is that all of us, all of our communities, in fact, our world is broken. It's in pieces. No matter how good looking our exterior, no matter how much we put up the front that everything is all right, the truth be told, we're fragmented, we're fractured, we're flawed. Some might define it, and rightly so, as original sin. That hereditary stain that we were born into and born with that allows us and even forces us to carry the burden that is the human condition. 
in the Hebrew sense, sin means a lot of things, a lot of different connotations. It's, it's a transgression, it's a disobedience, it's iniquity, it's a failing, it's a violation, it's rebellion, it's going astray. In fact, one of the best definitions I've heard is sin is missing the mark only because you weren't aiming at the right target, not measuring up to God's righteous standard, being broken in a broken world living in resistance to God's will and taking for granted even the goodness of our good creator, settling for shamelessly less than what God created us to be. If I can put it this way, sin is really the disintegration of our identity, which is a sense of morality. And it's also the rupturing of community, and that's a sense of ethics. Sin, with a capital S, is the root and the reality that includes and involves sinners and sinfulness and the sinned against. And sins, then, with a little s, are the fruit that follow. The psychological, the emotional, the physical, the relational, the social, tearing apart of our very lives. That's what sin is. And we all know it, and we all do this, in fact. Some sins are easy to spot, aren't they? Stealing and lying and fornicating and murdering and all these ideas that are running rampant in our families and in our communities, that's real. But then other sins are more complicated, more sophisticated. Sins like white supremacy, Sins like internalized oppression, sins like microaggressions, sins like complacency, sins like consumerism, sins like manipulation. And here is one of the greatest sins that I think we don't pay enough attention to, and that's the sin of hopelessness. Sin. All throughout history, people have called attention to it. The great mystic Howard Thurman, who was a spiritual advisor to Dr. Martin Luther King, once said that we have to watch out for those three hounds of hell, is how he termed sin. He talked about fear and hypocrisy and hatred. Martin Luther King would come after him and talk about the sins of racism and poverty and militarism that we often don't pay enough attention to. Even in our Christian tradition, we pay attention to those seven deadly sins, right? Envy and gluttony and greed and lust and pride and sloth and wrath. And then John 10 and other verses talk about the sin that disturbs and distorts and denies and destroys the very life that God intends for us. Proverbs 6 and Galatians 5 list the ways that we not only grab hold of our brokenness, but we perpetuate the brokenness in the ways that we live among one another. It's obvious. It's manifested in our relationships, in our behaviors, in our habits, in our desires, personal sin, private sin, public sin, past sin, sin in process. Sin is ever before us. I think I hear Paul's words, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? War and poverty, corruption, failing neighborhoods, 
scandal and stress, trillions and trillions of deficit, consumerism, billion dollar prison industrial complex, opioids, HIV and AIDS, embezzlement, domestic abuse, trafficking, pornography, sexism, road rage, it goes on and on and on. The truth is, nobody's exempt. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans tells us. And every one of us, I guarantee, can identify numerous moments in our lives when sin became more than just an abstract concept, but it got real to us. It was that same year that I was spending time in Dr. Hudson's class as a freshman at OSU, only to find that when third quarter came around, we were on quarters back then, I didn't have the grades to stay, and I flunked out of college my freshman year. Now, mind you, it wasn't just that I flunked out, but I lost a full scholarship in a family that my mother couldn't afford to have sent me in the first place. It not only harmed my present reality, but it harmed my family. Single parent did everything she could to get me there, and I betrayed her. I failed miserably. And the guilt and the shame that went along with that. Even though now, as I'm privileged to teach graduate students, I cannot and probably should not ever forget those moments in that season of failure. Sin, you all, is simply this. Any and every disruption to our lives and our relationships. Some might ask, well, you know, why is this such a big deal? I mean, why does God even care? Why does God put up with us? Why does God even bother? Well, because it has everything to do with our sacred connection with God and with one another, which if you drill down to the heart of everything that scripture is about, it's about the experience of God's people with God's love story over millennia. It's this idea that God has always been after and about relationship, relationship with him, relationship with one another. And the reason why sin is so significant is because it breaks that relationship. The entire Old Testament legal code, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system spent time trying to answer how do we get back to shalom? How do we live in a state of well-being? How do we get back to healthy relationship with God and with one another? From the Ten Commandments to the offerings that were given in Leviticus, healthy and rightly related community and life well-being was the point of it all. I need to say this because that's in such stark contrast to the American brand of Christianity that we cling to today. I hope I don't get myself in trouble today. But it seems like we have mirrored the culture in so many ways, where we tend to prioritize the individual first, me and mine, as opposed to God's family. It's like 
the cancer where a rogue cell becomes malignant as it seeks a life for itself and in the process kills all the other cells around it and ultimately destroys the body. Now, I make community a priority. And understand me, I'm not prioritizing or grabbing hold to some ideology of communism or socialism or all the other foolish uh, ideologies that are out here. But we are Christ followers who prioritize godly relationships that unapologetically value our sister, our brother. Watch this, our neighbor, our strangers, our enemies, even above ourselves. This kind of relationship is what God is after. And this kind of relationship is only possible because of what the Lord has done for us. Physicians will tell you, and I'm not one, that accepted treatments for cancer includes radiation to try to burn it away, chemotherapy to wear it down, excision to try to cut it out. But here's where I'm going with all of this. Forgiveness of sin is so much more. It's the only answer to what we're up against. For forgiveness of sin gives life in spite of the pain, in spite of the wounds, in spite of the scars, in spite of even death. God's forgiveness, God's ultimate claim on our lives because God loves us so dearly and so intently surpasses anything else that would interrupt the life that God intends. Recall, if we were to backtrack in the book of Genesis, back in Genesis 3, where the first instance of sin really was. After eating of the tree and breaking fellowship with God, the Bible says that the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings in an attempt to solve the problem of sin, <laughs> they tried to hide. They tried to cover it up. But we know, and we, I don't hear this too much these days, but that familiar English nursery rhyme has a point. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty together again. And that's to say, with our sin, none of us is qualified to get it right. And none of us is able to live this forgiveness thing by ourselves or for ourselves. Only by the grace and mercy of God in that God intervenes in our lives. And just like he did back in the book of Genesis, the word tells us that he made garments of skin which required something had to die. It's this that is the first expression of forgiveness in Scripture. Forgiveness appears again and again. It appears in the story of the golden calf where the writer says, pardon our iniquity and our sin in Exodus. It appears with the story of the spies in the book of Numbers where they say, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of these people according to your great kindness, O God. It appears in Psalm 103, where the psalmist declares, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, 
He removed our transgression, our sin from us. God did that for us. Yes, sin is real. Yes, sin has been powerful. Yes, sin has wreaked havoc on our individual lives and our communal lives. But God steps in, intervenes, and does the heavy lifting. In my study, that mosaic of that lonely jazz trumpet player looks like he has it all together, but he's really in pieces. And I hadn't noticed until I started preparing for this message, when I looked again at the portrait, there are other musicians surrounding him, but I hadn't paid attention because his sin was so prominent. Oh my God, there's another sermon even in that. But across from this mosaic, these musicians in pieces, I have a mahogany crucifix that my wife and I picked up when we were overseas. I have them poised across from one another because it reminds me that even in our brokenness, even in our attempts, God is able and God is the only solution to the mess that we find ourselves in. And so for our word today, we join with that chorus in the creed that says, I believe in the forgiveness of sin. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming from a mile away and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews reminds us that there can be no redemption without the shedding of blood. Oh, the songwriter said it this way, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? What can bring shalom again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the forgiveness of sin that has been accomplished once and for all by the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God in Christ, number one, covers us in all of our sin, washes us from all of our guilt, mends all of the broken pieces, makes up for everything that we have been missing. When we stray away from God, when we break promises with one another, the Lord makes a way forward for us, and it's called forgiveness. In Christ, we're covered from the immediate conflict that sin has created. In Christ, we are cleansed from the ultimate consequence that our sin deserves. In Christ, we're called out from the sinfulness and into community with God and with one another. Matthew 18 is probably one of the most helpful chapters on sin and forgiveness I've found because it conveys the heart of God. Go back and read it sometime. In it, we find talk about who's the greatest in the kingdom, talks about becoming like a child before God, talks about the stumbling blocks that are prevalent in our communities, talks about finding the one lost sheep, it talks about church discipline, talks about binding and loosing, talks about settling debts, talks about what it means to be owed and yet show mercy. But most familiar for me was Peter's question to Jesus. He said, Jesus, how often shall my brother sin and I forgive him? And you know the story. Jesus remarks, 70 times seven. In other words, until. 
No end date. Just keep doing it over and over again. Why is that critical? Because it's exactly what God does for us. Forgiveness gives life where life has been forfeited, even intentionally or unintentionally. And it means this. I've said it. It means we are covered. It means we are cleansed. It means we are being called out from sinfulness and into community with God and with one another. We could talk about the deep theological concepts of atonement and expiation and propitiation and justification and all these fancy $10 words, but here it is for me. Forgiveness is clearing away my broken glass so that we can walk barefoot with God in the garden. Years ago, when my youngest child, my daughter, she had to be maybe six, seven years old. We had gotten up early and went into the kitchen and uh, was our custom, at least weekly, we'd go in and we'd make breakfast together. And we're both barefoot in the kitchen and my daughter reaches up and grabs a glass and she knew better, but she grabbed it anyway and it slipped through her hands and onto the hardwood floor. And here, daddy and daughter were standing with bare feet with all of this broken glass on the floor. I picked her up, I set her on the counter, and I said to her, baby, I got you covered. I then proceeded to get the broom and to get the dustpan and started sweeping things up, <laughs> cleansed. And I looked at her face and tears started coming down her eyes and she looked and I hadn't noticed, but I'd cut my foot on the broken glass that was her fault. And she said, Daddy, I'm, I'm sorry. I gave her a big hug and I said, let's make some pancakes. Called into community. I believe that forgiveness keeps us connected by removing all of the obstacles, even the obstacles that we have caused. Removes the obstacles with our relationship with the creator, relationship with one another. God's forgiveness allows us to share life in this pathway that we're all a part of. And we all have opportunity to participate in this. I've done a lot of talking with you today, but here's where I want to end up because it's easy to talk about all of this in the abstract, but I promise you that every single one of us, because we are relational human beings and we're in relationship with somebody somewhere, there's some brokenness in there. Can we be honest and admit some things we're very aware of. In fact, we're hypersensitive to. But other things we may have just tucked back in the deep, dark corners of our lives because it's too painful for us to think about. I want to encourage you, my sisters and my brothers, that there's work that needs to be done. As I look back over the scriptures, 
In every instance where Jesus declares forgiveness of somebody, something happens. Somebody's healed, somebody's delivered, somebody's set free, somebody's incorporated into the, something happens. He doesn't just talk forgiveness, but he takes step towards the one being forgiven and demonstrates what it means. It's almost as though if you were to transpose forgive to be give for. I wonder in those places of your own relational and personal brokenness, what would you be willing to give for the life of another? In this season and climate of our contemporary culture with the racial brokenness, what will you give for the sake of another? In this politically charged and divisive climate, what will you give for the other? Economically separated in marriages and families and entire neighborhoods are fractured, but what will you give for the sake of relationship? Wherever Jesus issued forgiveness, steps were taken to make it real. Maybe you give up your pride. Maybe you give up what you think somebody owes you. Maybe you give up that wound that you've been holding on to so tightly that it's never healed. Maybe you just give opportunity to be reconciled with somebody that you've been estranged with. What will you give? I believe in the forgiveness of sin. God bless you.